All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to another episode of What Had Happened, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Kimberly, bringing you lesser-known true crime stories. Okay, so we've been having some technical difficulties here with the sound, so there's no beautiful intro music. There's not going to be any beautiful outro music. Y'all are lucky to hear my beautiful voice. Eek. Super late here right now as I'm recording this. I was in the zone, threw in some ad-libs inside of this script. You know, I just finished listening to Don't Fear the Reaper by Blue Oyster Cult, which is my jam. You know, as I do every time I get ready to record, took a few sips of some coffee, got my dumpster juice alert ready, and then everything basically went to shit. See, I'm like modifying my curse words already. That was with two Z's, not a T. Anywho, whew, I'm still ready to rock and roll with you guys. This is our last episode of 2021. I hope everyone's having a great wrap up of the year. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, eh, what can you do? Christmas was over the weekend. For those of you who celebrate and observe, I hope it was super merry for you. For those of you who don't, I hope you guys had a great weekend. Chef don't judge. Christmas went off without a hitch for us here, per the usual, super chill, just like how I like it, you know. I watched a lot of true crime, some thrillers, psychological thrillers, you name it, I did it, you know, binge it, live it, love it. So, anywho, I'm not gonna lie, I'm super stoked for the new year and the content that I'll be bringing you guys for the upcoming year. I'm also excited to celebrate the first birthday of what had happened to True Crime Podcast with you all in February. Just tons of great things to look forward to and present to you, you know, my What Had Happened fam. If you haven't already, please join the What Had Happened Facebook group, follow the podcast on Instagram, Twitter, subscribe on YouTube, there's the What Had Happened website, there's the email where you're encouraged to say, hey girl, hey, long time listener, first time emailer. Share a true crime story you'd like to hear on the podcast. Whatever your heart desires, just keep it freaking clean. All of those links can be found below in my references per the huge in the description box. Thank you all individually for being so good to your girl and spreading the word about the podcast to others, helping build the listenership. You guys are really the true MVPs. Now... I'd like to say thank you, thank you, thank you. You're far too kind. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is your shout-out time. Greetings and salutations, Salt Lake City, Park City, Ephraim and Lehigh, Utah. Hey, Indianapolis, Columbus, Muncie, and Fort Wayne, Indiana. What's good, Henderson, Las Vegas, Reno, and Parham, Nevada? I see you, Oklahoma City, Yukon, Piedmont, and El Reno, Oklahoma. Hey, Tony, Birmingham, Truesville, and Athens, Alabama, what it do? Hej, Vastra, Gotjeland, Varmland, and Stockholm, Sweden. Hola, Jalisco, Chiapas, y Sinaloa, Mexico. Hola, or hello, Agder, Oslo, Vestland, and Rogland, Norway. Hola, Sao Paulo, Rangia, and Bahia, Brazil. Hola, Asuncion, Paraguay. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the likes, shares, and subscribes. So, last week, I told you about two ambush massacres, because there's really no way to sugarcoat this shit. See, there I go cursing already. Anywho, told you guys about two ambush massacres that transpired on Christmas Eve. 
the first being the 2007 family annihilation of the Anderson family in Carnation, Washington, and secondly, the 2008 Christmas party massacre slash arson of the Ortega family in California. Today, I'm keeping my promise to one of our longtime What Had Happened group members. And on a personal note, one of my Semper brothers from the Marines who represents West Virginia, Vasilios. What it do, boo? Shout out to Vasilios and his family. Today's episode focuses on the first serial killer who created an underground torture bunker in the Mountain State, a.k.a. West Virginia. Okay. So, what had happened to the women who were looking for love in the classifieds? Looking for love in all the wrong places. Looking for love. That's what's like really stuck in my head. Anyways, um, they were looking for love in the classifieds, but found death at the hands of the Lonely Hearts killer, Harry Powers. Harry Powers was born Harm Drenth. November 17th, 1893, in the village of Birta in the Netherlands. Harm joined sister Greta, who was four years older, and parents Wilco and Jante. Or is it Jante? I did not figure this one out. I feel like it's like kind of like Jeanette, but not. I don't know. In November of 1903, Wilco and his wife gave birth to a stillborn child. Described as a troubled youth, Harm was constantly in trouble for lying and stealing. In 1907, his sister married and had her first child. By 1910, tired of neighbors complaining about Harm lying, stealing, trespassing, and drinking, Wilco and his wife shipped 18-year-old Harm to America with the Baker family. In the early 1900s, a large number of Dutch farmers emigrated to America, tired of high taxes and low wages. These farmers settled primarily in Michigan, Illinois, and Iowa. Upon their arrival to the U.S., Harm and the Bakers emigrated to Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Shortly after arriving, Harm began working for the Ross family on their farm, only to quit shortly thereafter because he didn't like being told what to do or being bossed around. In 1911, Harm's mother and father immigrated to Cedar Rapids. Shortly after their arrival, Harm was arrested for stealing liquor. Okay, so keep up, people. I can't keep up with how many times this guy's been arrested, but... Just know that there's a trend. In in the year that Harm had been in America, he'd become bilingual. Wanting to assimilate and become more Americanized, the Drenth family changed their names to more American-sounding names. Harm settling on the name Herman. By 1903, his sister and her family had also immigrated from Holland to Iowa. In 1917, the Drenth family left the Dutch community they'd lived in and worked amongst in Cedar Rapids to a 40-acre property that they purchased 250 miles north. Okay, here I go cursing again because this is literally in the script. Troubled as fuck, Harm had been caught torturing farm animals. Mm Mm-hmm. It starts somewhere. In 1918... 
Herman, now going by the name Harry G. Powers, had a blonde girlfriend he called his wife, and the two moved from Iowa to Madison, Wisconsin. In 1919, after being arrested for stealing a car, the girlfriend boldly smuggled tools into the Dane County Jail, where Harry and another inmate, Walter Bartkowski, Bartkowski? Bartkowski, successfully escaped. Two years following the harrowing jailbreak, Harry became infatuated with a 20-year-old woman named Rose Strickland. When Miss Strickland married another man, spurning Harry's feelings towards her, he broke into her home and stole some of her possessions. In an attempt to conceal his burglary and theft, Harry set fire to Rose's home. But the fire failed to spread. Harry was arrested and served less than 15 months in prison for his crimes. In 1922, after his release from prison for arson and theft, Harry distanced himself from his family and moved away from Wisconsin as well. At this time, he began utilizing the Lonely Hearts Matrimonial Bureau mail order ad services. Owner of a lonely heart. I'm telling you, like, the puns. I could, I could go there. Okay, the, the songs alone, okay? So, ahead of his time, for those of y'all who don't know what this is, so basically for, like, my younger demographic, let me school you. Harry was ahead of his time. Like, so, like, if I'm being honest, Bachelor Harry took advantage of this, the predecessor of what we today would know as, you know, like, the online dating and apps. He joined a Lonely Hearts Club. Lonely Hearts Clubs, in an essence, were established to help people who had a difficult time putting themselves out there, you know, to get into the dating arena and find their special someone. Men would pay $4.95 and women would pay $1.95 for an, an as an annual membership fee. These matrimonial bureaus would send members listings of available matches, primarily widows and widowers, along with a description of their best attributes, be them real or fake, looking for, you know, and, you know, this is where Harry found his niche, scamming the ladies. He was an extremely popular bachelor, receiving approximately like 10 to 20 responses daily in the mail. Harm would use the ads initially to prey on lonely widows and spinsters, taking them for their money and possessions. This scam was known as a widow racket. In 1924, shortly after making contact with 50-year-old widow Allie Province of Mansfield, Ohio, Harry, going by the name Joseph Gidlow, age 31, married her. Shortly after marrying, Harry laced a cup of tea. Well, okay, so they said tea or coffee, but we're going to say tea because that's what's on the script. Either or, a hot beverage, okay? He laced a hot beverage with sleeping pills and served it to his bride. Whilst incapacitated, Harry stole valuables from Allie's home and vanished into the night. When Allie finally awoke, she found her valuables and husband were missing. A warrant was issued for Joseph Gidlow, but he was never arrested. 
From Mansfield, 31-year-old grifting gigolo bounced from Renton, Minnesota to Cambridge, Ohio. In September 1924, still 31, and remarried to an unknown woman, Harry and this wife were arrested for grand larceny in Three Lakes, Minnesota. So essentially they stole some shit from some guy's garage and homeboy was not having it. After friends posted the couple's bond, the two skipped town, failing to appear in court. Basically, you know, like, forfeiting their bond and bail and all that stuff. Three months later, in December 1924, under the alias John Gidlow, again, Harry found himself arrested, yet again, this time in Mansfield, Ohio, for attempting to sell stolen goods to a second-hand dealer who suspected that the items were hot. So they didn't say, like, if when he was apprehended as John Gidlow, if this had anything to... Oh, that's right. Okay, so he was going under the alias John Gidlow for here, but they had him as Joseph Gidlow for the theft of his that he committed with his first wife. All right, gotcha. Checkmate. Anywho... So, you know, this guy was doing his due diligence and he alerts the police, lets them know, hey, this shit looks stolen. Four months later, Harry again was arrested as this Gidlow person. This time he was apprehended for stealing money and jewelry from Ms. Lena Fellows. Lena was a woman Harry had duped into accepting his marriage proposal and, you know, they had made plans to elope only to be robbed and left brokenhearted by this SOB. The following year, Harry was arrested again for theft of vacuums from the Eureka Company. Yeah. 1926, 33-year-old Harm, who was now known as Harry Powers, moved to the Clarksburg area of West Virginia where he billed himself as a used furniture salesman and vacuum salesman. For, you know who he guessed? You guessed it, right? The Eureka Company. So listen, I don't know if he stole this shit <laughs> and then was like, you know what? This looks like a great company to work for. After he, uh, he had to have used like a different name when he, he had to have used his like real name when he got hired. And they had him as an alias when he was arrested the first time for the theft. Because let me tell you something. This man started making a way for himself with Eureka. After answering an ad, the ad of 41-year-old farmer and grocery store owner, backslash widower, I believe. It was just a widow. Luella Blanche. Strother of West Virginia. The two wed in 1927 in Maryland. The two settled into their married life at Luella's farm in Quiet Dell, West Virginia, a small town approximately like two and a half miles away from Clarksburg. Ever the con man, Harry continued to place ads though in the Lonely Hearts Club whilst being actively like full on married to Luella. You know, like yeah, you kind of got to keep at least one spouse where you're going to be, like, shacking up with her as far as this is concerned. I'm sure he had to have a place to, you know, lay his head. Oh, 
Assuming the aliases John Schroeder, Joseph Gidlow, A.R. Weaver, and Cornelius Orvin Pearson, the ads the ladies were swooning over read as this. Wealthy widower, civil engineer worth $150,000, has income from $400 to $2,000 a month. Owns a beautiful 10-room brick home, completely furnished with everything that would make a good woman happy my wife would have to would have her own car and plenty of spending money would have nothing to do but enjoy herself okay well i wonder if luella was enjoying herself mm. by may 1928 harry had risen to the position of manager at eureka when his boss dudley wade suddenly disappeared without a trace. To deflect, Harry accused his boss, who was missing, of stealing a sizable amount of vacuums from the company and pocketing the proceeds from these illegal sales he had to have been making. Two months later, in July 1928, the missing vacuums were discovered inside of Harry's garage. Harry was yet again arrested for theft from the Eureka Company. In 1929, the body of a nurse in Cleveland named Golda Brown was discovered. Golda had died of poisoning and left behind a suspicious-as-fuck suicide note. However, the note was not in her handwriting. Her father learned of her death when he received a letter signed by one of Harry's aliases. As Golda's father was identifying his daughter's body, Mr. Brown was approached by an unidentified man who matched Harry's description. The stranger was said to have told Mr. Brown to, quote, grab the body and get the hell out of town. During the year of 1929, Harry would travel to Illinois ever so often to visit a garage he was renting from a landlady in the town of Morris. After complaining about the ungodly odor emanating from the garage Harry rented um, from the landlady, she stated that he basically just booked it. Like She was like, hey bruh, this place stinks stinks to high heavens it it smells like there's a fucking body in here real true crime enthusiasts know where i got that quote from rip kaylee anthony uh so a few hours later after he books it the remains of a woman's body were found on the side of the road wrapped in burlap it's believed now that during this time, Harry was completing the construction of his underground bunker of horror that he had built underneath the farm that he had shared with his wife, like the barn part of the farm, uh, and that he had rented this garage in Illinois so that he could begin murdering people and do it without being caught by the missus. So, super busy, Harry juggled courting Dorothy Press. Oh, <laughs> I skipped a line. So, in June 1931, 
Harry returned to Illinois. Super busy, he was juggling courting Dorothy Pressler Lemke, Bessie Storrs, Virginia Bell, and Edith Simpson, proposing to both Dorothy and Bessie. Using the alias Cornelius Pearson, Harry began pursuing well-off widow and mother of three, Asta Eicher, aged 43, originally of Copenhagen, Denmark, that he'd become acquainted with through da -da -da -da, the Lonely Hearts ad at the same time. So he is literally juggling one, two, three, four, five women plus his wife at home who, bless her heart, she obviously didn't fucking ask questions. I mean, I understand he was a salesman and at the time that meant travel. So maybe that was how he was able to keep his wife at bay. I don't know. Only one can speculate at this point. So, after becoming engaged to the lovely Mrs. Asta Eicher, <sighs> dumpster douche Harry travels to Park Ridge, Illinois to meet Asta and her family. And he essentially, like, moves in for, like, the next few weeks. And after Harry had been in the Iker home for a few weeks, Asta, who was using her home partially as a boarding house, informed her boarder, Mr. William O'Boyle, that he needed to find a new place to live as her beau, Mr. Pearson, and she were to be wed soon and he'd be moving in with her and the children. Greta, age 14, Harry, age 12, and Annabelle, age 9. This is where shit gets sus. Well, it's not even sus. It's just fucked. On June 23rd, Asta and Harry, quote, went on a romantic trip, leaving the three children in the care of Elizabeth Abernathy. The children were in her care until she received a letter stating that Mr. Pearson was going to be picking up the children and bringing them to their mother. He also began telling the neighbors that the family would be traveling to Europe. When Harry picked up the children, he drove them first to the bank. He sent one of the children into the bank with a check asking to empty and close Asta's bank account. But the child was sent away without any money when the signature on the check was found to have been forged. It did not match Asta's signature card on file at the bank. Knowing that that jig was up, Harry quickly departed with the children, leaving the Iker neighbors with memories and more questions than answers. When Harry and the Iker children arrived to his home in West Virginia, he gave them the impression that he was super anxious to get them settled into their new home, and also that their mother was waiting for them, you know, so that they could start their new life. But first, he needed some help with something in the barn. Quickly ushering the children into the, into the barn, 
I assume to avoid the detection of his wife. As he'd done with Asta, Harry opened the trap door that led to the four-room torture chamber he'd created beneath the barn. For days, he... Okay, you know, it's late here in anywhere USA, but it's time. Dumpster juice Dumpster juice I should have just started banging this fucking cowbell from the rip and just let y'all know this whole thing is just dumpster juice. So for days, he abused, starved, and gassed the Ikers whilst standing in the corner masturbating. After days of torturing the family, Harry decided to place the children in cages, forcing them to watch as he picked each member of the Iker family off one by one by hanging. Young Harry Iker screamed uncontrollably as he watched his mother hanging from a noose. He screamed so loud and feverishly that Harry was infuriated and to, you know, to stop the child from screaming, he struck the boy in the head repeatedly with a claw hammer until he was killed. Greta and Annabelle in their cages watched their brother and mother die. <sighs> Greta and Annabelle were hanged, just like their mother. After burying the Iker family in like a shallow and shallow graves on his property, Harry moved on to his next and final victim. His fiance, Dorothy Lemke of Northboro, Massachusetts. After persuading the 50-year-old divorcee to move to Iowa, where they'd wed, he convinced her to withdraw $4,000 from her bank account. Wrapped up with the dreams of her future life with Cornelius, the divorcee didn't even realize that Harry had her trunks sent to an address in Fairmount, Fairmont, West Virginia. So look, it's unclear as to how Harry got Dorothy to West Virginia because he told her that he lived in Iowa and they were going to be wed there. However, he still managed to get her there. And, you know, what is certain is that shortly after murdering the Iker family, Dorothy met the same fate as they did beneath his barn. Dorothy was tortured, starved, and hanged. Eventually, after days of abuse and torture, she was strangled with a belt her body disposed of behind the barn covered by a burlap sack. So it's now August 1931, and Harry has murdered five innocent people. Not one to leave anything behind, the greedy grifter returned to Park Ridge, Illinois to strip the Iker home of its valuables. On this particular day, Asta's former boarder, William O'Boyle and Super Down Bitch had stopped by the Iker home to retrieve some tools he'd forgotten when he moved out abruptly, you know, like a month or so prior. 
When he arrived at the home of the Ikers, they were not at the home. However, the man known as Cornelius Pearson was, and he was removing the Ikers' belongings. Literally packing this shit up and loading it up to get it the fuck about a Dodge. Thinking that a burglary was in progress, Mr. O'Boyle notified the police. Now, initially, Harry told the police that he was Cornelius O. Pearson of the Fairmount Hotel in Fairmount, West Virginia. He stated that the Ikers had moved to Colorado and, was, and he was there at Asta's request to pack and move their belongings to the Rocky Mountain State. Harry presented a bullshit bogus letter that appeared to be in Asta's handwriting, stating that he was responsible for paying the taxes on her home and getting the home prepared for future renters. When Harry was unable to give any further detail or information as to the whereabouts of the Ikers, the police, who were not dumb, decided to investigate further. The house of cards began to crumble around Harry when it was discovered that no one in Fairmount had heard of this mysterious Cornelius O. Pearson. Upon further search of Asta's belongings, police were able to find letters that came from Quiet Dell, West Virginia, which led them to the property Harry and his wife lived on. So, backed into a corner, Harry continued to claim that the Iker family had moved west, only to slip up moments later and admit that Asta had traveled with him to West Virginia. So, when police descended upon the Powers' property, they found hundreds of correspondences between Harry and countless women, as well as a trove of stolen belongings and trinkets pilfered from his many victims over the past like, decade-ish. It wasn't long, though, before police discovered Harry's underground four-room torture den that was covered in blood and recovered the five bodies he'd disposed of on his property. Now, this sick, twisted story got out so quickly that his farm became like a destination point for looky-loos. Everybody wanted to go to the quote-unquote murder farm, which is really fucked up, okay? But, I mean, hey, that was entertainment for people back then. On August 28th, Harry was arrested for the brutal slayings, and on the 29th, he confessed in great detail to the murders of the Ikers and Dorothy Lemke. As news hit the presses nationally of the heinous crimes committed by Harry, women from all over the country came out as victims of his scams. One, Bessie Storrs of New York, had plans to wed the serial killer on the day that he was apprehended. Immediately following his confession, Harry was examined and found fit to stand trial for his crimes. His psychological evaluation revealed that Harry had a psychopathic personality, as shown by his reclusive behavior, wandering, extreme restlessness, and inability to understand himself, as well as his sexual issues, which they did not get into. So I don't really know what that was, but I mean, obviously there is some 
something going on with him that was repressed or wrong because he was torturing people and shaking hands with beef simultaneously. That's not fucking normal. At all. Okay? Like, ever. While he wasn't insane, he was found to have been borderline his entire life, and he was capable of understanding the difference between right and wrong. You know, so on December 7th, when his trial began, due to the amount of people who flocked to witness the trial, it had to be moved from the courthouse to the opera house in Clarksburg, which seats 1,200 people to accommodate the spectators. In court, Harry appeared bored and disinterested in the proceedings chewing gum and yawning throughout the opening statements of both the prosecution and defense. When it was time to take the stand, though, in his defense, Harry whipped out the razzle-dazzle. Harry cried openly, bawled like a little bitch, saying that his miserable marriage had driven him to the Lonely Hearts ads looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love. Harry vehemently denied his previous admissions of admissions of guilt, saying that he had nothing to do with the murders of the Ikers and Dorothy Lemke. He also, okay, like literally, because there's pictures of it, he got his ass beat as soon as he got, I don't know if he even made it to the jail before he was getting his ass beat. So he had like a huge black eye the pictures that the press showed were just gruesome. He just looked like a fucking monster because they, you know, pummeled him for the things that he had done. And I'm pretty sure they pummeled the shit out of him because he murdered those three children. Okay, West Virginia justice. So, December 11th, after spending one hour and 50 minutes deliberating, the jury found Harry guilty on all counts. On December 12th, he was sentenced to death by hanging and placed in a death row cell at the West Virginia State Penitentiary. On March 18th at 9 p.m., Harry was taken to the gallows. When asked if he had any final words before his execution, Harry simply said no, which was like a first because, you know, Bitchface had a whole lot to say to all those women that he was conning, scanning, murking to death. But when they asked if he had any final words, he simply said, no. After the noose was slipped around his neck and the bottom opened, Harry bucked and twitched for 11 minutes before finally being pronounced dead at 9-11 at p.m. He's been known as the West Virginia Bluebeard and the Lonely Hearts Killer. I just think of him as a sick degenerate fuck. So, what had happened is this. I just mentioned Bluebeard, so for those of you who don't know the myth of Bluebeard, in the tale, Bluebeard's a wealthy man of rank who, as soon, soon after his marriage, goes away, leaving his wife the keys to all of the doors in his castle, but forbidding her to open one of them. She disobeys and finds in the locked room the bodies of his former wives. Um, and, you know, then she meets her own 
demise. So similarly, Harm, Harry, Cornelius, Jingleheimer, Schmidt, whatever the fuck you want to call him, he amassed a lot of women. Okay? Like, I mean, like, a lot of women. And he used them for what he could use them for. But he also had some, obviously, he had some deviations. He had a lot of thoughts of harming things. I say this a lot, not because I'm a professional, not because I know everything, but because I read a lot and they always say that, you know, harming animals is a sign. You know, it's normally one of the ways that, that people who get into committing these acts against human beings begin. They harm animals. He had a history of harming animals in his youth. When he was, you know, in Holland, he was a really troubled child and youth. You know, from the beginning, his parents pretty much knew that he was, you know, just not right. And they were afraid of him. And they feared for his future. I'm sure that they feared what his outcome, you know, what, what he grew to become in, in America. I'm sure they feared he was going to grow to become in Holland. So they ship his ass off, send him here, and oh boy, oh boy, did he run amok. I mean, it's one thing to pursue a lot of different women and, you know, play the field, so to speak. It's another thing to go in with the ulterior motives of gain, material and monetary gain, and fuck their feelings, fuck their emotions, and hell, they don't even need to be alive, you know, in some cases. They're expendable. To him, they were not women. They were not humans. They were simply a source of gain. He hated being told what to do. His track record for working was bullshit. He was defiant. He couldn't be bossed around. He had to live life on his terms and fuck everybody else. He was a user, abuser, and an overall loser, to, to quote one of my favorite shows from the 90s that I'm not gonna name drop. We love you, Amy Sedaris. Yeah. Uh, he was just a horrible human being. He preyed on women who had low self-esteem. He preyed on women who had lost their loves and were looking for love again. 
he preyed on older women because he felt like they were easier to manipulate. A woman who was within his age range most likely wouldn't put up with his bullshit. You know, at the end of the day, everything that he did was calculated, premeditated, and hell. By taking that time, there was like a two, was it like a two year, two or three year. There was like a two or three year, slightly dormant time frame where he was busy creating his own world beneath the barn on this property in West Virginia. He obviously had thought this through. He took the time to rent a location in a different state where he could commit at least one murder before even finishing the development of this torture chamber. And then in one failed swoop, once he was finished, he gratified himself by, you know, I feel like he kind of kidnapped these people, you know, by abducting, there you go, abducting, by abducting these five people, taking them to this dungeon in his barn that his wife didn't even know about. And if she did, she was one smart heifer because she kept her fucking mouth shut. Okay, um, you know, they, uh, he, he was premeditated as fuck. He had dreamed about this. He obsessed over this. This was something that he and only he could get gratification from. And obviously his wants and desires had increased. His appetite for destruction and murder had grown. Uh, his greediness as well. And I mean, it would be one thing to just see this as greed, but the fact that he kept them alive for days and tortured them says that this was more than killing for gain. This, you know, fed his appetite. Boy, oh boy, did his parents name him proper when they named him when he was born. Harm was a harmful human being who brought nothing but sadness and hurt to the world. And I can say that I am super glad that in 1931, the jury was not falling for the shit. I mean, 1931, I don't think that there was a single jury in this country that would have found him not guilty, to be perfectly honest. Uh, you know, the evidence was stacked against him. The bodies the blood-soaked dungeon, the letters from all of the women he had corresponded with over the course of 10 years or so, 
you know, what a sick fuck, you guys. Ugh. What a hell of a way to wrap up our first new year together, you guys. Wow. Whew. Well, you know, that's it. I got jack shit all for you guys today. Um, hope you guys enjoyed it. Again, I'm Kimberly, your host of What Had Happened. Can't wait to see you in a week or two when it's 2022 and I'm bringing you our next gen of lesser known true crime stories here on what had happened to true crime podcast you guys be safe out there have fun rock out jam out have a happy new year drink some of that lovely Clico for me when the ball drops and I'll see you guys in January have a great one night